Hello, I'm C. Stephen Ellis, novelist, and this is my podcast, The Writer's Mind. Here we will discuss all aspects that relate to the craft, business, and creative side of writing. For more information or a transcript of this podcast, please go to my website, www.cstephenellis.com, and that's Stephen with a V. So focus your ears because it's time to step inside the writer's mind. Hi, and welcome to the writer's mind. I'm C. Stephen Ellis, and this is episode 11. Today, we are talking with Susan Munshower, who is a writer. And when I say a writer, I mean if you look up writer in the dictionary, you will see her picture. Uh, today, I am all going to do this without writing it down. So in uh, every other podcast I've done, I've written out what I wanted to say beforehand, and then I would read it. And uh, I don't like the way it sounded. And uh, sounded. I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, and I've listened to many other podcasts, and everybody sounds so glib and so easygoing, and I didn't. And so this is my way of trying to um, sound more relaxed and, and more genuine, you know, like we were in the same room just hanging out, and we just were having a conversation. So uh, let me know what you think. Uh, you can always email me at c ellis at cstephenellis.com. And again, that's Stephen with a V. So today I wanted to talk about uh, something that was actually, um, actually came up in my interview with Susan when we talked about her process and about when she writes. And that is, do you have a set time that you do your writing? So uh, I am a very lucky writer in that I work out of the house and uh, I don't have to go uh, to an office and then carve out hours to write during the course of the day. Uh, but at the same time, because I am home, I'm also the one that, you know, takes the, the dogs to the vet or uh, I happen to be in physical therapy right now. So uh, I don't have a set time for physical therapy. Uh, I wait for them to give me a time and then you know, that obviously is going to be at a different time almost every day. Sometimes it's early in the morning, sometimes it's late in the afternoon. And so I have to kind of get my writing in around all of that, um, between picking up the dry cleaning. And, um, and so I wondered how people who write at a very set time do that. Unless that time, I'm imagining, if you feel like writing at... Uh, you know, from 10 p.m. to midnight or to 4 a.m. or something like that, when you know you're going to have absolutely there are no other interruptions and any store that you could possibly go to or a doctor that you could possibly see is going to be closed. So uh, that's my question to everybody. I want to know how you go about that, how you carve out that time, and do you really stick to it? Because... Uh, it's hard. It's so hard with, uh, with everything that's going on around you and all the distractions. And a way to uh, eliminate those distractions is to find a place to go to and write there. And that's something that I'm working on. Um, fortunately, though, I use dictation to write and going to a place, putting on a microphone and sitting in a corner and talking to myself may or may not work. I don't know. I'm not that self-conscious, so I, I, you know, I'm going to try it and see how it works. But I don't have a place to go to here in Los Angeles, which you know probably only has 100,000 great places to go and hunker down. Of course, you're bumping you know, elbows with every other writer out there, but you know that's the way it is. Anyways, email me. Let me know. Uh, again, I am at C. Ellis at C. Stephen Ellis. Let me know what you do. How do you stay in that time, or do you find that that window moves one direction or another direction during the course of a day? Uh, talk to you soon, and let's listen to what Suzanne Munchauer had to say about this. 
Hi, and welcome to The Writer's Mind. Today, we are meeting with Suzanne Munshower. Suzanne Munshower is one of those individuals who basically, I think, was born with a pen in her hand because she has been writing her entire life. She has been an editor of an adult magazine, which we must get into later. She's been an interviewer. She is a writer of nonfiction, uh, doing celebrity fan books. She did a book on Don Johnson, John, uh, John Travolta, Warren Beatty, uh, Diane Keaton, and others. She is a writer of nonfiction. Her nonfiction, she's written on beauty, entertainment, business, travel. Uh, she has a book called Simply Sophisticated, What Every Worldly Person Needs to Know. And she is also a writer of fiction, her re most recent book called uh, younger. So my first question to you is, what does every worldly person need to know? Every worldly person needs to know how to bluff a little bit. Oh. And the book was actually written for young people going into business to not seem uncultured and not seem unsophisticated. So it's a little bit about ordering wine, um, famous operas, um, famous golf courses, just things that would help people in business at, say, a business dinner or a social event be able to take part in conversations and seem a little bit more sophisticated maybe than they are. Gotcha. So tell me about you. How did you get started? I got started in grade school. I mean, I won a prize for a really silly story which my father kept until he died and which I now have called Why the Beaver Has White Teeth oh. and Flat Tail. And it's about a beaver who won a Pepsodent toothpaste contest to go to the big city and got his tail run over by a bus. So that was my very humble start. And because I was being pushed into writing as a child and then as a teenager, of course I decided I wanted to be an actress. So I went to Northwestern and I majored in drama and I ended up being a waitress, <laughs> you know how it goes. So I was a waitress in New York and I finally decided I really should get a regular job and I wanted to work in an ad agency as a copywriter and I couldn't even get interviews because I hadn't graduated. I quit college after three years. So I took the job that was the best thing offered to me, which was to be an editorial assistant for a magazine called Secrets, which was a romance magazine. And right. I became editor there. And then I said, you know, the writers make a lot more money than I do. If I write a story and you like it, would you pay me for it? And they said, nobody ever asked before, but sure. And that was the first thing I had published. It was called, I gave him the key to my chastity belt. <laughs> Good title. Well, yeah. let me... Let me ask you this, though. You say that you were kind of pushed into writing. Was it not something you wanted to do? Was acting where you were really at? Or did that just sort of evolve from the writing? No, I think I loved Broadway. I used to go to Broadway a lot as a child. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and I think as much as I love the idea of acting, I was also very, a very tall child. I, I'm five foot ten. And so I... I knew going into it that it might not be the career for me. I think it was more that I was always a little bit rebellious. And if people said, this is exactly what you should be doing, I said, well, maybe I have a different idea. Okay. But then I know from your website that you and your, um, and your bio that you went to Europe and you spent a lot of time in Europe. When did that happen? I didn't go to Europe until 2002. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, I did it sort of in reverse. Most people do it before their career. <laughs> and I just wanted to live abroad and I wanted to live in Italy. And I moved to Italy and I was in Italy for eight years. And then I went on to Berlin because I wanted to be in a big city for a while. And I was in Berlin for four years. Before that, I was in Los Angeles. So you didn't do the, uh, the teenage thing after high school to go and backpack around Europe and, and spend some time in the uh, youth hostels and things like that? 
No, I waitressed at Howard Johnson's on the Pennsylvania Turnpike after school. <laughs> now, where is that? Is that New York? In Reading, Pennsylvania. Reading, Pennsylvania. Which is where my family's from and where I was born and when I went to, where I went to my last year of high school. Okay. Did you go to college? I went to Northwestern University. I left at midway through my junior year. I just sort of felt that my parents were wasting their money, that I wasn't getting that much out of it, and I was really more into having fun, and I wanted to move to New York, and I moved to New York. Okay, and the actress thing, as you say, didn't really work out. I mean, you must have gone on auditions or something like that. I did, I did, and I did some summer stock, and I did some voiceover, but I really... I didn't have the passion and, you know, it's so competitive and it's not like writing where you send things in and get rejected. It's where you have to stand in line for hours and then get rejected in person. And I admire anyone who can do that. I realized it wasn't, it wasn't the right thing for me to do. Well, you talk about passion and correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that writing really wasn't a passion for you either. It's kind of something you fell into. Well, no, I mean, I loved doing it, and I always wrote, and I wrote poetry, and I mean, I wrote for myself in high school and in college, and I liked, I like words. I've always liked words, even as a child, and playing with words, to me, is about the most fun you can have as a job, as a career, so that was why I basically wanted to be a copywriter at first, which I later became. And then I was very happy to learn editing skills. And I wrote a confession story because it seemed like the most natural thing for me to write because I was working with them, not that I had read them before I started working in that area. Um, so I think it was more that I see myself as a working writer. I do have a passion for writing. I love writing. Uh, as you know, uh, we really come alive when we get lost in the pages and we forget that we're writing, that we're just sort of channeling our characters. And I love that, but I never saw myself as someone who could only write this or could only write that. Or ha I didn't have that kind of passion. I consider myself extremely lucky, unbelievably lucky to have made a living my entire life through writing in some form or another. So to that degree, yeah, I would say it's a passion. I can't imagine doing much else. You know, I have a, a quote on my bulletin board that is, uh, I, I attribute it to Stephen King, but he probably stole it from somebody else. Uh, called, basically, it says, I don't know what I'm thinking until I write it down. I think that's very true. And I've read a lot of, uh, of essays in which people talk about how you get to know yourself also through writing. And you really do, um, especially fiction, I think. you Because someone said all the characters are you. Right. To a large degree, that's true. They all come from some part of your psyche. So it's I'm using fiction right now as a way to explore psychological areas I'm interested in. So it's always, to some degree, personal. So um, did you keep a journal when you were a teenager or a young adult? No, I never have. So you didn't, you didn't have that kind of introspection through your own writing? No, I mean, I did keep a diary briefly when I was in my late teens, early 20s, but it was like a boyfriend kind of diary, you know? Oh, okay. It yeah. was. <laughs> he smells like garlic kind of thing. It, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> deeply philosophical. <laughs> I, I went through one of those Sturm und Drang periods in my early 20s where I wrote a lot of very psychological poetry. Okay. But it was pretty boyfriend-oriented. You gotcha. I yeah. gotcha. So, <laughs> so then... Um, one of the things I also have down here is that you were an editor. Uh, of course, I want to ask you about uh, editing an adult magazine. I do that because I actually myself put myself through college uh, writing uh, porn stories for an adult magazine. 
So uh, I'm curious about what you did, especially as an editor, and then if you took that and became more of an editor to people who had manuscripts and worked with other writers that way. Well, I started out actually working with other with writers as an editor because of this of Secrets magazine, which trained me strictly editorial skills. I was doing line editing, and and then I, from there I went on to fan magazines, and then I moved to Hollywood and I worked for Rona Barrett. But when I was doing fan magazines, a publisher I knew who from the fan magazine industry. I think that's an industry that's pretty dead now because it's been replaced by People and all those magazines. But a, a publisher I worked for ended up working at an adult magazine. And I had done some interviews for a British adult magazine. Um, I don't know if you if you remember Club and Club Quest. It was Paul Raymond in, in London who had the Windmill Theater. And I did some interviews with exotic dancers and hookers and, you know, different kinds of people for him. And so then when the, uh, when the option came up to be, uh, to work for very good money for an adult magazine as an editor, uh, I had just moved back to New York and I accepted it. And, you know, it was fun um, for a while, um, but I eventually found it very demeaning to women in terms of the photo shoots which I didn't, I didn't do the photo shoots, but I would say I did it for about a year. But what was the really fun part about it is that the people who work for those magazines, as again, as you know, are really crazy and funny, some of them. And uh, I worked with Gloria Leonard, who at the time was a very famous porn actress. And she was a retired porn actress then. It was the Al Goldstein Screw magazine sexual liber liberation period right right i was trying to search my memory for her for her but i i don't remember i do remember at that time it was uh i do remember al goldstein who was insane yes and yeah sure. and i do remember uh you know when porn was starting to become legitimized in movie theaters back then so that was my time in college but um okay so but so editing with other people, though, when you were when somebody had a manuscript and they were coming up to you, how did you work with them? Were you somebody who was, uh, you know, let me work with you from concept through execution? Or were you somebody that said, you write it and then I'll read the manuscript and I'll tell you that you're missing plot points in the second act or something like that? No, not at all. I never edited books, for one thing. I was not a book editor. I was... Uh, I was an article editor, articles editor, and I went from New York and the porn magazine uh, to another fan magazine, and then I went to working as the editor of a, of a beauty industry business management magazine. So I was doing a lot of the writing myself, and I was assigning a lot of pieces. And basically, with you know, it's it's article stuff, article kind of kind of short pieces. So people would be submitting things to me and I would just edit them. Okay. It was and pretty cool. Do you think that that's still a viable way for a lot of writers to get started by submitting uh, magazine articles? I do. And newspapers um, and opinion pieces. And it's a way to get your name in print and trade magazine pieces because it's a way to get start building up a portfolio, I think. And um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I ended up staying in the beauty industry for a very long time. I'm still in the beauty industry to a certain extent and that I do some ghostwriting for people. And I had a public relations agency serving the beauty, the professional beauty industry in Los Angeles. So I think that, as I said, as, as someone, if you're going to be a journeyman writer, you just like to write and you like to edit. And... Um, and I'm sort of a, somebody called me the comma queen. You know, I'm a real stickler for grammar and punctuation. So it's fun for me. Okay, so uh, two words and another word. One, two commas, one comma. Oh, um, I'm the Oxford comma You're person. the Oxford comma? Okay. 
I've done some technical editing and where you have a lot of run on run on lists and lists within lists and you really need that Oxford comma to, the the bottom line is clarity. Got it. And and I'm bas- I'm basically a line editor. I am not a developmental editor and we didn't have the two of course years ago. You just sold a book and you had an editor. And now you sell a book and it, it first goes to the developmental editor who gives you input on the plot and how the plot moves and how the how you're carrying out the theme throughout the book. So it's a little bit different now than when I first started writing fiction. And I first started writing fiction. I, I st- I, my first published full-length fiction was a romance novel. I had never read one. I had been writing celebrity, unauthorized celebrity biographies. And I wrote a, a regular, tried to write a novel. I wrote the first three chapters and I gave it to my agent. And my agent said, you're a good writer. You don't know how to write a novel. And he, he suggested that the first thing I do was pick a genre and write a genre book. I would have loved to have read, written a mystery, which was always the genre I loved. But I didn't have the nerve because it meant too much to me. So I wrote a romance. And I ended up writing a whole lot of romance novels. Well, I mean, that's the most popular genre in in fiction right now. I mean, now and for a long, long time. So, I mean, it must have been very lucrative for you. Well, this was back in the Harlequin romance days. And I wouldn't say very, very lucrative. It was a living. Okay. It was good living. And when you can make a good living doing something you enjoy, that's fabulous. Uh, I wrote quite a few teen romances, YA romances, which would now be upper middle school romances because young adult romances have become much more uh, open about topics like sex and drugs and violence. So it's it's very different now. And... um, yeah, I think that's that's the ideal thing is is to be able to write and get paid for it. And when I went to Europe, I was already trying to put together um, my first mystery thriller, which was younger. And so after all those different books, I went back to doing what I really wanted to do to begin with. But when you were doing romance, did you embrace it? Did you find yourself going to these I, I don't even know what they're called, but romance conventions, you know, sort of a romance con of some kind or anything like that? I, I've never gone to any conventions, no. I mean, it wasn't quite the industry it is now. It was like there was Harlequin and then a few other other labels were getting into romances. I wrote a, a romance novel for, <clears throat> excuse me, for Simon & Schuster that was supposed to be the first illustrated romance novel which was a romance novel with maybe eight drawings in it. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was not a graphic novel. And um, I wrote about things I liked. I mean, I made that one about Paris and about a woman who was a caterer. So I did, I did fun things with what I wrote. But do you, do you, were you in touch with your fan base at all? Were you aware of them? No. So you just knew that the books went out, they were sold, and you didn't know who was buying them and nobody was sending you letters at the time or anything like that. I got some letters sent from the publisher, but that was about it. It was pretty pre-internet. Right. But I mean, and weren't those, and correct me, but weren't those, um, not Harlequin, I don't know if Harlequin was, but weren't the others just imprints of the big five? Oh, yeah. I wrote for Simon & Schuster. I wrote for Dell. I mean, a lot of these publishing companies are defunct, of course. I wrote for Bantam. Um, I wrote young adult series for, um, there was a a, a brand called Sweet Dreams. It was done by Dell. I believe it was Dell. It might have been Bantam. And um, yeah, they were all, I mean, I wrote everything I wrote was sold to publishers. I I haven't done any self-publishing. Okay, well, we'll get. We're going to circle back to that uh, because of uh, Mercer being the imprint of Amazon. So, um, but going forward, though, 
did you find, especially when you're doing romance and you're doing fiction and you've spent your, um, you know, your career editing, did you actually employ an editor or did the publisher have an editor that they made you work with? You know, publishers assigned editors in those days and they didn't, they didn't do a whole lot of editing. Uh, it was mostly line editing and sometimes very strange things where they wanted a specific word used. Or I mean, I don't know. It was a very different kind of editing than from today. And um, no, they didn't have, there weren't, as I said, there were no developmental editors then. And I never had anybody edit my books. I worked with book packagers on some of the, on some of the projects so, I mean, I guess they read the books, but they never, sometimes they'd come back and suggest I add something, uh, especially if it was a nonfiction book. But, no, it was a very different business up to about, I'd say probably everything changed about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Well, what kind of marketing did you do for those books? Did you do any? I did nothing. I did, bo <laughs> I did a book. <laughs> That's true. I did do a book tour for, um, for, for nonfiction. I did a book tour for Simply Sophisticated. I wrote a book called Bagel Mania with another writer, and I was actually hired by Swanson's. I did the bagel tour. The Swanson's, I, like Swanson Wine Swanson, Frozen Dinner Swanson? Swanson Dinners. They put out, they invented the bagel breakfast. And it was a microwavable, I called it the trafe bagel. Because it was a microwavable bagel that was like ham and cheese on a bagel. And the idea of putting ham on a bagel was so bizarre at that point. And they sent me on a television tour. And I did a lot of talk shows, daytime talk shows. And I was the talent. It was really exciting because my host in every town would be a home economist who would actually go and actually get her hands dirty preparing the food. Well, and it was also your chance to act again. Yeah, I felt like a star. Yeah, well, you are a star. <laughs> the bagel star. <laughs> now, when you're writing nonfiction, do you find, what, what is your research process for that, especially the sophisticated book? Well, I'm a huge researcher. I was born to do research, I think. I love to do research. And whether it's online or whether it's in a library or a special educational research facility, for Simply Sophisticated, I, I knew what subjects I wanted to cover. And I just read a whole lot of books and did, read a whole lot of articles to get all the information I needed. And um, as I would always do with research, if it was on a specific topic, I would read several things to make sure I wasn't just aping someone else's uh, sometimes prejudicial point of view to make sure the research was as, as objective and factual as it could be. Well, what did you use a specific tool or was it just a yellow notepad or how did you, how did you capture that research? At that point, I did a lot of it on the computer. I used to always do research if I went in person I would do research with um, index cards, notebook, whatever I needed. And it's the same thing with interviews. I, I can tape record interviews, but I also was trained where you do an interview and you write down notes, and that still works for me, unless it has to be word for word, verbatim, and then I have the t a tape for a backup. And when you took notes as an interviewer, did you use some kind of shorthand, or was it your own shorthand, or... It was my own kind of quirky way of writing things. You okay. know, get your, you get your own abbreviations and your own way of doing things and putting it together. Yeah, or like leave out the vowels or something like that just to make yeah. it fast. Okay, well, I learned that when I was in college. Um, so when you started to uh, write fiction, uh, how, was, how did that difference manifest itself? between all of your magazine editing, your nonfiction work, and then starting to get into fiction? Is it a different mindset? 
Well, it is. I mean, it's obviously it's more creative in a, in, in a major way and that you're I think it's a very visual way of writing. I can't write a scene without seeing it. And a lot of people have said that, especially with younger, that it reads like a script in a lot of ways, it, that it's very easy to follow as if you're following a film. That I learned, I think that's just a natural thing that you have. I mean, I, don't, I didn't study it or read books on writing. One thing I really learned from doing nonfiction, and especially from doing interviews, was writing dialogue. And I love to write dialogue. Now, how so? Because I was always paying attention to how real people spoke. Well, you had your tape recorder, too, for reference, yeah. right? And, and so I had, I, was, I had exactly how people spoke, how people hesitated, how people... Um, elided things, when people would use contractions. And one of the, to me, a giveaway of a beginning writer oftentimes is very stilted speech in dialogue and no meter. You know, the idea of having, you have, a, you have to have a meter in dialogue. It has to move a certain way. And that's a great skill you can get from interviewing people and from eavesdropping. Eavesdropping. Yeah a great way to learn how to write dialogue right i did learn that from a um a book that i had which was you know eavesdrop on everybody uh, so when you moved over to fiction did you your your genre your latest genre outside of the romance was uh mystery yes so, so I write did you have a mystery writer now do you have in, did you have influences that uh, carried you along? Oh, I did indeed, and and also I I took a class quite a long time ago, but I took a class with Larry Block, Lawrence Block, and I also took a workshop with him. Uh, I recommend his books to anyone. He's great on dialogue, and he's great on creating characters, not necessarily a step-by-step -step guide, but you read it, you read his books and it sticks in your mind that how to make characters particular and special. So uh, he was a great influence. And of course, the Matthew Scudder books are just brilliant. I liked a lot of American writers like Sue Grafton. I liked the old writers. Raymond Chandler was a great influence and he certainly used dialogue and action together brilliantly. Uh, Dashiell Hammett, um, other fiction writers like Stephen King, a lot of the uh, European and British writers, uh, Ian Rankin. I, I like police, police procedurals, even though I would never try to write one because I'm not savvy enough about the, how the police work. But um, yeah, I think that people, I think we're influenced by everything we read. And would you would give that advice to uh, any kind of writer that they should read, read, read inside, outside their genre? Oh, I think the first thing is read, yes. And, and read and read for content. And after you read a book, go through it. And you don't have to take notes necessarily, but it's very good to be aware of how it was put together. Larry Block said he wanted to be like Graham Greene. And he took a book, I believe it was The End of the Affair, but I'm not totally sure. He took a book by Graham Greene and he decided he was going to write a book with the same number of words in every chapter, the same number of chapters, and he completely deconstructed this book. And I do think things like that are very, very good exercise. And you know, as a, I think most writers do this. So as a writer, you read on two levels. You read for the story, and then you also read with a part of your mind, seeing how they did it. How did they hook you? How did that book keep you turning those pages? How did you feel at the end with the resolution? So given that, you know, when you study and you understand structure and you start to think about things, what kind of advice do you have for a writer 
to get out of the get out of way of themselves so um, that they can quiet right. that critic yeah just right sit down and you know i've found that almost whether it's a a press release a magazine article or a novel almost everything i write i don't use the first pages but get those first pages done get yourself off to a start Sometimes I'll do the first chapter of a book and then I'll go back and do some outlining after that because I want to feel that I'm into the book. Well, that, that was my follow-up question. Do you outline? Mm, roughly. Do you consider yourself a pantser? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a born pantser. You're born a... to Yeah. I mean... I was born to pants. <laughs> I could... I mean, I can work from an outline, but if you do too much of an outline, you're doing the thing that makes a book, to me, you're doing, you risk doing the thing that makes a book ring completely false, which is that you decide what a character is going to do. And it doesn't come from your character development. And I can't write that way. I like my character to become very strong on the page and then if there's when there's a situation, I can think back and I sit back and I can think, what would he do? What would she do? Not but, what do I want them to do. But at the same time, you do have goalposts up. And if suddenly you have a character, because I, I know I've had this happen. I've talked to other people when they uh, people who are pantsers like yourself, that they'll get to a point in the story where they, they have to hit that goalpost. And their character says, no, I don't want to do it. And what do you do when that happens? You change the goalpost or you go back and you start reworking the character. I, um, I always say I hate revisions. I hate revising. But it's where the book happens. And I've never written anything without four or five revisions. full rev Pretty full revisions. Because... Maybe the maybe the first draft is my outline, you know. But I but I really need to get things down on paper, because the le the more time that goes without getting things down on paper, the farther away I f I get from starting something. How long does it take you to write a book? Anywhere from a year to two years. I mean, I used to write books in a month when I did celebrity bios, but to write fiction. It takes me a year, usually close to a year to write a first draft, and then depending on how much re how much revising I do, and then I have a I have a panel. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm I'm in Las Vegas, so you know how dry the air is here, right? <laughs> it's very dry. I have a panel of four people whom I trust greatly. They're all either former editors, current editors, former writers, current writers, and they very kindly read my work and critique it. And a lot of times I see things because of them that I didn't see to begin with. It's always made the book stronger. Okay. And so that whole process going back and forth and doing multiple uh, rewrites on your manuscript, that, that takes about a year. Yeah. And, and because also you have a submission process and everything else going on in between. Uh, with Younger, I did have a developmental editor that I worked with. And that, make, that takes quite, even though I didn't make ma any major changes, that takes time too, because you're working with someone else. Well, let's, talk, I, let's talk about Younger. So Younger was published in 2015? 2015. Okay. And so that's an interesting way. So you're working with the Amazon imprint, which was, I think they started in 2011. And um, a lot of people, you know, they don't see them as being a traditional publisher. They kind of see it as that middle ground between those who are independently published and those who, you know, are traditionally published. What do you see? I see them... I see them as working very hard to be a traditional publisher. You know, they pay good advances. 
they promote your book. They will not promote, they don't promote your book in terms of uh, doing an author tour, in terms of giving you a publicist. They promote your book strictly through Amazon. But I was very happy with them. I had a great editor. I had two great editors, actually. And I found the process of working with them uh, very fulfilling and rewarding and easy. Now, there's no money out of your pocket for this, right? Oh, no. Yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't spend anything. I mean, I, uh, my book was sent out by my agent. They made an offer that we liked. And I had several conversations with them beforehand. They really wanted, the editor uh, really wanted to speak to me to make sure I understood how everything worked with their own imprints. And um, I was very happy with them. So I imagine also that, uh, you know, Amazon's big strength, of course, is their marketing because they have pretty much anybody who goes to Amazon, which is the world. So has that, have you noticed an increase in sales as a result of working with Amazon? Well, I didn't have this type of book before, so I can't say it was a change in sales. I do find with Amazon, I mean, through through no solicitation on my part, um, I think I now have 2,200 reviews on Amazon, which is not easy to get. No. If you Not with Amazon. I mean, it, it, it really isn't. It's, it's a miracle to have that many reviews. Well, not only that, but Amazon is very limiting. For example, uh, when I independently publish my book and to get friends or fellow writers, authors who, you know, I may have an acquaintanceship with, but because they're an author, they won't allow them to give a review. So it's, it's a very difficult um, uphill battle uh, with Amazon right now. And they're your main source of income. Well, I mean, it's one book. Yeah, well, I understand. And yeah, I mean, I think that for, I think that for, for ind independent writers, uh, the great thing about being self-published is you can make the transition to being published. And uh, Eric Thurm, I don't know if you know, T-H-E-R-M-E, would be a good person for you to interview. Um, Eric was a self-published mystery writer. And he's now with, um, he, he's written some books for Thomas and Mercer. And he's someone who's done very well with Amazon. And there are also people who have moved from either self-publishing, independent publishing, or an Amazon imprint to a brick-and-mortar publisher. So there's a lot of different options. I have a friend who published her own book, uh, nonfiction, autobiography, with Amazon, and she published it like six years ago, and she's still getting decent royalties. She did her own book tour. And you know, so I think it's just a question of how much you can work something and how good you are at it. I don't have a blog. Uh, I, had, I have a website, but my website has gone down because the web designer disappeared, and I don't have access to it situations. So I'll be doing a new website for my next book, which is in the process of being finished. Um, but I think people have had very good uh, results from blogging. I do have about close to 7,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, and so I do some, some, a little promotion on Twitter, but that is not my point of being on Twitter. But I think that's, that certainly helped my help sales. But you don't collect a mailing list. You don't try and build a mailing list and send out notices to people, hey, my next book's coming out, that sort of thing. No, unfortunately, I had a mailing list built up on the website that is now I'm now locked out of. Oh. But, yeah, but I will be announcing it and I will be, you know, I, I, um, I had a lot of really great reviews from book bloggers. Um, I had a Fantastic review from the brilliant Christopher Rice, whom I know you know who he is. Yes. And uh, that helped me a great deal, I believe, because he did the review for the Kindle online magazine. 
And uh, so that was great. And I think that with my next book, no matter who publishes it, I will be more proactive. Understood. Well, you kind of have to be, I think, in this today's world. It's just just doesn't exist the way it did, you know, back in the 90s or even before that. Especially with nonfiction, I think. And nonfiction, I think, is, is definitely easier to sell online. I agree. But you have to have a blog and you have to have that built up. I know quite a few people with um, cooking and food books who have done very, very well publishing their own books. Do you, um, I noticed that uh, your book is also an audio book. Yes, and I was not involved in that. Not at uh, all. Other than signing off on the, um, on the narrator, who was Joyce Bean, who was fantastic. That was some, that's an Amazon project. So in terms of rights, then, uh, who has the rights to your book? Is it, own, is it owned by Mercer? Or is it owned by, and the same thing with the audio rights. Do you have any piece of that pie or was it just a payout? No, they have those rights. Okay. Uh, I, uh, some rights will revert to me. But the European rights will revert to me. Okay. Uh, translation rights will revert to me. I have film rights and television rights. So it all depends on, I mean, I shouldn't say it all depends because I don't think it does. I think Amazon has contracts and, and you like the contract or you don't, which is true of most publishers and most agents nowadays, by the way. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of room for negotiation on many things other than, other than your advance. But can you, uh, does Mercer allow you to track your sales so you can see how many Kindle, you know, eBooks you're moving, uh, paperback, uh, and, well, they are brilliant. And audio too. So which you have, you have access to the website that gives you a report every month. What do you think is uh, selling the best then? E, uh, traditional paperback or the audiobook? Oh, I think I think Kindle books are what sell. You know, eBooks. And I think there's several reasons for that. And I know, I know people don't like it. And as a writer, it's hard to like it because you make less money as far as if you're with a publisher. However, the fact is, as a reader, I can understand it. As a reader who travels, it's so much easier to travel with a Kindle. As a person who's moved 44 or 45 times in her life, it makes moving easier to not have a huge library to move. So I can understand the allure of ebooks um, for someone who wears reading glasses to be able to read an ebook by making the type bigger and not wearing glasses is fabulous. And so I divide my reading. I still like I still like paperbacks and hardbacks. So let me ask you a couple questions um, about your process. Uh, do you have set times during the day that you write? Do you write whenever the mood strikes you? Are you somebody who decides that, you know, 1 to 4 a.m. is the best time to write? I'm rolling my eyes. I'm sure you can see that. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. I'm the, I'm the ultimate pantser. I try to write every day. I do corporate projects in between, so I'm not necessarily always free to write every day. I've never understood and to some degree never believed writers who say, I sit at the typewriter or the computer at five o'clock every morning and I sit there until noon, come what may. It doesn't work for me. <coughs> if, I, if things aren't happening creatively and something's not coming, I busy myself with other tasks. You know, there's always something to edit, something to pitch, something to do, whatever. And what tools do you use? I write directly onto a MacBook, MacBook Pro. Um, my, my most important tool, I would say, is my Chambers. i going to pick it up. My Chambers thesaurus, <laughs> the best thesaurus anyone will ever find. And sometimes just reading it is an amazing source of inspiration. 
That's interesting. Because you come across words, you know, it's got all these kind of obscure British words in it too, like rapscallion and termagant. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it just gets your mental processes stimulated. Well, uh, do you use Word? Hmm? Do you use Microsoft Word? Do you use Scrivener? Do you, what oh, do you I write use? I'm, I'm old-fashioned. You know, I, I was writing manuscripts on, a, on an IBM Selectric for many years, and everybody I knew had K-Pros when I finally got a word processor. That was my big step up. So it was only when I was terrified of computers, and it was only when I went back into corporate um, I went into corporate uh, PR. I was the, I was working at Image Laboratories, which used to do stiff stuff, hair hairstyling products, and then I was working in PR at Redken, and Red, I came into Redken just as they made the switch from from DOS to Windows, and that got me into using computers because Windows changed everything. It made it not scary anymore. All right. Well, uh, we're almost out of time. So I want to, I always ask this one question of everybody, and that is, is there something I didn't ask that you wished I had? Well, thank you very much. The only thing I, I love talking to you. I love talking, obviously. So I was once interviewing somebody and they say, they said, did you see how I managed to sneak that in? Um, the only thing is my, my upcoming book, which is called Sucker Bat. I'm not sure who's publishing it yet. I'm still in the process of finishing it. And it's exciting for me because it's set in Las Vegas in the mid-1970s and 2011. And it's, um, it's a very different kind of mystery for me. Well, I look forward to that. How do, can people get in touch with you? I'm uh, on Twitter. They can message me on Twitter. Or follow me. I'm at expatina, E-X-P-A-T-I-N-A. That's from when I was an expat. Got but it. I'm at at heart in many ways. So. And that's your Twitter uh, handle. That's my Twitter. And do you have a Facebook page or email? I don't. I, they can. They can also reach me at expatina at gmail dot com. Got it. Okay. I, I lost all of those other things when I lost my website. So there will be eventually a new website. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been a very interesting interview. Really appreciate the time you took with us. Well, thank you so much, Craig. I hope it was helpful to people. And if anyone has any questions, um, I will definitely get back to them if they contact me. I'm, that, I'm good about that. That is terrific. Thank you again. Thank you.